When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to We Are History. I'm John O'Farrell. And I'm Angela Barnes. And Angela has chosen today's topic, something highbrow, something intellectual, something I you would have studied. I don't mind admitting it, John. I like a good bit of old-fashioned smut. <laughs> it's a very English humour. Smut, broad, earthy, in the vein of Chaucer, Shakespeare, Hogarth, Dickens. What's wrong with it? Yeah, being sexually suggestive in a light-hearted and humorous and non-threatening way. Exactly. And that's why I have chosen today to do the history of the saucy seaside postcard. Oh, yes. We grew up, John, didn't we? Like, the saucy seaside postcard was just something that was always there. It was as much part of being British as a knotted hanky on your head or football violence, oh, really. times. Um, but they must seem like quite a strange idiosyncrasy to our overseas listeners. Yeah, you can't quite imagine them on the French Riviera somehow, can you? No, yeah. they're a very quintessentially British thing. Um, so what they are, they're postcards yep. with these caricature-style drawings on them, very colourful, and they usually, John, have a rude joke on them. Right. Built around some sort of misunderstanding or double meaning. Yeah, using classic sort of joke structures, wordplay, puns, innuendo. Love it. Woman walked into a bar and asked for a double entendre so the barman gave her one fantastic stuff. hey come I mean, on this is the these are the jokes of course saucy cards are pretty tame by our standards today in terms of being sexually explicit at least and um, we'll see a bit later on that they are shocking in other ways less by the obscenity and more by certain tropes should yes. we say that crop up in them do you still send postcards, John, when you go on holiday? I've just realised that I don't, actually. It's a bit of a shame because mm. it used to be quite a nice thing to do. To I think I might send them to sort of um, elderly people I Yeah, know. we they, always send them yeah. to my mother and father-in-law. We send them to that and they always send one to us. But yeah. that's it, really, now. Yeah. Occasionally my mum will send one to. I remember sending one from Lanzarote and Texas going, it's good you get a break from the comedy writing. And I wrote a comic limerick about Lanzarote on the back of the postcard. <laughs> I still remember it, Angela. I'm going to do it for you now. Lanzarote, Lanzarote, the drains will smell... Something's grotty. And all the Brits in Lanzarote have bright red skin and runny bodies. Very good, John. I can see why they let you write musicals. So, should we start then with the history of the postcard? Indeed, itself? yes. Um, so, uh, you're going to go back. So, paper was invented in AD 105 in China's Han Dynasty. Is that where we're going? That's right. That's where we're starting. No, let's just go to the world's first postcard. And this is quite interesting, actually. I didn't know this. So the first postcard was sent by a man called Theodore Hook. Do you, have you heard of Theodore Hook? Never heard of Theodore so Hook. So he was a Victorian writer, musician, bit of a playboy, and a renowned hoaxer. Oh, and that immediately no, means danger. Go, oh, what? He was a bore. He was a twat. Um, <laughs> he did something called the Berners Street hoax. Have okay. you heard of that? No, I haven't, no. So he bet his friend, uh, Samuel Beasley, right. that he could transform any house in London into the most talked about address in a week. Okay. And the way he did it was he sent out thousands of letters in the name of a Mrs. Tottenham who lived at 54 Berners Street. And he requested deliveries, visitors, and they all started turning up on this one day. Right. She had chimney sweeps, coal turned up, fishmongers, over a dozen pianos turned up at her house. That's a bit of a crap joke. He is the sort of person who described himself as fun loving, you know, a bit yeah. of a laugh. That is that guy in the office that everyone yeah. else thinks is a prick. And he was governor of Mauritius. Okay. And while he was there, he embezzled funds, ended up in a debtor's prison. And anyway, later on, he sent the first known podcast. And who do you think he sent it to, John? Podcast, you said that. He said Did the I very first podcast. podcast. That's, <laughs> I, think, that, I mean, I, that's amazing they go back that far, Angela. I'm amazed. So, yeah. I, I know I'm going to keep doing this. I'm going to keep saying podcast instead of postcard. He sent the very first podcast to who, Angela? <laughs> he sent the first known postcard. Who do you think he sent it to? Uh, the Queen. Nope. He sent it to himself as a joke. Oh, okay. <laughs> and that's because the image on it was a parody of postal workers that he drew. Right. And so he wanted the postal workers to see it. Oh, there's an old story about uh, Jeffrey Barnard, the sort of uh, louche uh, journalist and sort of drinker, uh, who every day would go to the pub, send himself, sit there, write a postcard to himself to 
put the letterbox. And then the next day when the post office van came down his long lane to his rural house, he'd say, could you give me a lift back into the village? I'm going to the pub. And he'd do that every day and get a lift off the postman. Wow, that's incredible. <laughs> Excellent work. So they were probably the first two people to troll the post yes, office. Yes, yes. <laughs> so um, the picture on this postcard is yeah. captioned Penny Penates, I suppose. Penates. Penates, maybe. Uh, and it shows a gathering of these sort of caricature postal clerks with huge pens sitting around this big inkwell marked official. Okay. And so the left and right of the inkwell appear the words penny and penates, penates. What does that mean, penates? Um, in ancient Roman religion, the penates, penates were the guardians of a storeroom or household. You did linguistics. You know how to pronounce things. Yeah, well, I'd say penates if I was saying it in Latin, but it could have been anglicised. All right. Well, it so sounds hilarious. I don't know if it's hilarious. a phrase that's well-known at the time. I mean, this, the fact that we're trying to explain this joke and understand how you even say it means it's not a great joke. It's not a great it? joke. I don't no, really I get I it. I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't close the store with it. No, absolutely not. But in 2002, it sold for a record £31,750. Wow. Uh, but that could be because it had a rare penny black stamp on it. Yeah, until the early 20th century, it was thought the first postcards were invented in the US. They thought they did it, or maybe Austria or Germany. But yeah. we're going to say the Brits got there first. This yes. predates them all. Absolutely. And then there was a bit of a postcard boom at the turn of the 20th century. Originally, I wrote in my notes at the turn of the century, and then it just occurred to me that there's been another turn of the century yeah, since the yeah, 1990s. Yeah, it's only been 23 years. Yeah, but do, do you know what I mean? I still think of turn of the century, obviously, yeah. being 19th to 20th. Anyway, yeah. at the turn of the 20th century, century, uh, 419 million cards have been posted, and this would grow to 880 million by 1914. Wow. And it's called the golden age of postcards. Yeah. And at this point, they were sent as sort of birthday, Christmas, Valentine's greetings, etc. They weren't really connected yet to the idea of seaside holidays. So how did that come about, John? You know this. Oh, I know this. The expansion of the Victorian Rail Network. We did yes. a podcast about that. Um, and suddenly, British people of all classes could take a day trip or a holiday to the seaside. That's right. Replacement yeah. bus service in operation. Absolutely. <laughs> so now you've got everyone going to the seaside. And then in 1938 came the Holiday Pay Act. 1938. 1938. It's quite it's late, late, isn't it? it? I thought it was a typo. Yeah, no, it's right. Yeah. And it, that meant that working people got paid holidays. And that's when places like Butlins and the traditional seaside holidays that we recognise now came about. Have you been to a Butlins? You've never been to a Butlins, have you, John? Uh, no, we used to go to my parents' cottage in Brittany, Angela. It's very different. We weren't even <laughs> posh enough for Butlins. We were a Pontins family. It's like a knockoff Butlins. It was worse. No, I've been to some of Westworld. I've been to Butlins in Minehead once. That Did was you? A, yeah, that was a good laugh. I'm, you know, I'm posh from Maidenhead. I know you're posh from Maidenhead. You know, I'm I'm scum. <laughs> so if you went to the seaside and you didn't have Instagram, how else are you going to show off where you've been? But with a lovely picture postcard. Exactly. And these postcards then, they started to depict seaside stuff. Donkeys, deck chairs, other holiday paraphernalia, like buckets and spades. I, I live in Brighton. And it's always amazed me that the shops on the seafront in Brighton sell buckets and spades. Yes. That's like a Pebble Beach. Yeah, like, what crazy. are you supposed to do with <laughs> The only way any castles are getting built if they start selling bags of cement to go with them. I remember when um, there was a, there was a, when I was writing for Five Got News for you, someone came up with a good joke when terrorists were targeting postcard targets like Big Ben, Buckingham Palace and a lady's bosom with a face painted on it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's uh, because there's this now... Naughty subset of seaside postcards. Yeah. The, the saucy postcard. The saucy postcard. Uh, yeah. That's right. So there's this company called Bamforth & Co. And they're probably the most famous company that made saucy seaside postcards. It was initially set up by James Bamforth in 1870 um, to produce portrait photos because we know how much the Victorians loved a yeah. portrait photo. But from 1903, they diversified and moved into the production of postcards, which proved to be extremely successful. And the name most associated with them is a man called Donald McGill. Yes. Uh, we'll take a little break there, I think, John, because uh, you're expecting a delivery, aren't you? And I've got a cake in the oven. So, John, you check your big package and I'll check my soggy bottom. And welcome back to the podcast. We're talking about saucy seaside postcards. I mean, one thing that you should say about postcards and Christmas cards that we covered in our Christmas episode is that we live today in a very image-heavy uh, world. We have Instagram, we have colour magazines, we see posters on train stations. Back in the old days, you just didn't get many visual images. It was very expensive to illustrate books or to produce colourful magazines. And so getting Christmas cards or postcards was like, a, oh, look at that lovely picture. It was quite a rare thing. Mm -hmm. um, but 
The flip side of this was it gave the opportunity for the saucy postcards. And Donald McGill started designing postcards in the 1900s. Um, so who was he, Angela? Who was the man behind the cards? So he was born on the 25th of January, 1875 at Regent's Park, which is quite a well-to-do family. Okay. Uh, his great-grandfather actually left Scotland for Virginia and fought in the American War of Independence as a captain of the Loyalist Queen's Rangers. He was on the Brit side. He was. So McGill saw himself as from this lineage, not afraid to hold a minority view. Um, yeah, and he's also uh, considered atheist, which was quite mm. a minority stance in Edwardian times, yeah, I guess. absolutely. Supported the suffragettes, embraced liberal politics, small l. Obviously, by today's standards, he wasn't exactly a woke snowflake, as we'll see by some <laughs> of the cards he designed. Well, quite. Yeah. His father was born in Montreal in 1834, but they eventually came back to Britain and settled in some style at Pilgrim's Hall in Brentwood, Essex, which... I believe now, from what I can make out, is quite ironically a Christian retreat centre. Oh, lovely. So there we go. Um, his father died of pleurisy aged just 49, leaving his widow, Donald's mother, with seven kids, including Donald, and they all had to move to this house in Blackheath. And his mother was quite a formidable character by all accounts. She wore the Victorian widow's weeds with the white lace cap and... I think she's, she sort of was one of these typical Victorian mothers. She spoiled her sons, expected her three daughters just to wait on them. Right. So um, what, had very traditional Victorian values, When you say she wore Victorian widow's weeds, what's yeah. that? She had a load of plants in her hair. Yeah, that's right, John. That's, you know, you see the pictures of Queen Victoria all in black with the little white lace... They're called Cat. weeds, are they? They're called widow's weeds. Okay, I didn't know yeah, that. I learned something. You so you learn something on this podcast, yeah. even when you're doing it. Mama Gill, very strong and definite views about what was right and wrong, didn't she? Yeah, granddaughters said that they used to walk the long way round to the tennis courts on a Sunday so she wouldn't catch them going there oh on the holy goodness. day. Oh my God. So she was this strong, domineering woman and she you know, was widowed for 52 years with seven kids, lived to be 95. Oh my God. Um, so he went to Blackheath Proprietary School. Called that because it was owned by shareholding proprietors, yeah. a school for the upper middle classes. Boo. Uh, there was quite an active old boy network from the school, and McGill attended every annual dinner of the Black Heathens Club until he died. Yeah, he was a keen sportsman at school, played rugby. Uh, but at 16, he injured his left ankle in a rugby match. He kept playing to the end, and then months later, after months of pain in his ankle, he eventually goes to a doctor. Um, by which time the bone in his foot was so diseased, he had to have his foot amputated. Wow. So he was in a wheelchair for weeks and eventually he got an artificial foot. Yeah, people don't often know he was disabled in this way. Apparently he once frightened the living daylights out of his own housekeeper who caught him with his foot in his hand. That would scare you. I think <laughs> foot in his hand not attached to his leg, I think is yeah, the key detail there. That's the key there. point. Yeah, yeah, he didn't just have his foot in his hand. It yeah, was, yeah. yeah. Um, he then went on to art school in Blackheath in 1891 and his mother wanted him to become a teacher. But he only lasted a year because he didn't like the syllabus. They kept making him do paintings of flowers and he wanted to do caricatures. Right. So in his spare time, he was drawing for newsletters, for local sports clubs and things. And he started developing his own personal style of drawing. Yeah. In the meantime, he joined a firm of naval architects. Mm -hmm. uh, always my dream. Um, <laughs> he stayed there for three years before being apprenticed as an engineer draftsman at the Thames Ironworks Shipbuilding and Engineering Company, where he stayed there until 1907. Yeah, and by all accounts, from those who knew him, he was a very serene and gentlemanly man. When you think about the person who drew these saucy seaside, but I'm sort of imagine a Sid James character, you know, with a dirty laugh <laughs> and a yeah, roll up sort of hanging out of his mouth. But at his old boys' dinners at the Black Heathens, he would sit next to the Bishop of Wakefield. God, this so like, this he dinner was sounds popular. worse and worse. Yeah. <laughs> um, he did, though, meet his wife at a music hall, didn't he? Florence yes, he did. Isabel Hurley was a daughter of the owner, uh, Alfred Hurley, who also owned the Rose and Crown pub next door. This sounds more like it. Yeah, although the music hall he owned was advertised as three and a half hours of refined and national entertainment without vulgarity, which is way more than I've ever managed. <laughs> um, I don't know what rational entertainment means either. That doesn't sound like fun, does it? It sounds like a man explaining how he sort of changed the gearbox in his car or something. It really does. <laughs> so I've had to sit through that several times. Um, and it became famous, this music hall, for its Sunday evening performances by seamen who were ashore from ships moored at Greenwich. I mean, that doesn't sound very refined. And then, like the way you skated past the word seamen without even doing I a double even, entendre. I, but <laughs> I, I, in a show about double entendre, I really should have milked seamen. Oh no, don't say milk <laughs> seamen, Jesus. Barnsley misses an open goal there. <laughs> <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> um, Florence lived above the Rose and Crown pub. And I do wonder what Donald's sort of strict mother 
made of this connection. Her two daughters, Florence and Donald's two daughters, have since said that their mother had a liberating effect on the family with her flair for fashion and kind, good-tempered nature. Uh, despite her background in music halls and pubs, she was considered respectable by the standards of the time, never going anywhere without her gloves and hat. Got to have your gloves and hat, yeah. Absolutely. But McGill loved the music hall, didn't he? And it's yeah. all its bawdy rambunctiousness uh, is reflected in his postcards. Yeah. Um, his other interests were what might have been called quite gentlemanly. They included medicine, biology, anthropology, astrology and cricket, especially anthropology. He said in an interview in John Bull magazine in 1949, anthropology makes you realise you're no more than a blade of grass. Yeah, I guess his atheism and this interest in human sciences makes sense, really. He wasn't worried about offending some god he didn't believe in. Yeah, despite his background and schooling, apart from brief period in World War II where he worked as a clerk in the uh, Ministry of Labour, he made his entire income from saucy postcards from 1908 until he died in 1962. Yeah. Um, he took fatherhood very seriously. He had two daughters, Mary and Margaret. And this is something I sort of relate to. And this is why my dad... I, I think this is why you chose. I think this before. is why you chose this one. Angela. It is really. I always used to describe my my dad's humour as sort. He's a sort of man who found car stickers funny. Oh no! You know, he had a very sort of base, naughty sense of humour. My dad, and also ran a sex shop and had quite, let's just say, a liberated lifestyle. And people sort of assume that. As a dad, he was also a bit anything goes, but it's not really the case. Like in many ways, okay, he might have let me get away with a bit more than other yeah. dads. Um, and I know he wished I was a bit less studious and a bit more fun. Like there was a bit of a role reversal right. there. He used to be like, oh, God, you're always reading oh, to me and things, you know. Stop, stop reading um, that book and. <laughs> yeah, have some fun. Because yeah. like, I was very straight laced compared to my dad. Okay. But he was still my dad. It was yeah. still a father daughter. You know, he would yeah. tell me off. He would make sure I was all right, you know. Um, and by all accounts, McGill's daughters were a little prudish when it came to their father's works. And I get that. You know, my dad's sex shop, it's not like. Of course, I didn't want to hear my dad talking about working in a sex shop. Right. Um, and he once said about his daughters, Donald McGill, he said they ran like stags whenever they passed a comic postcard shop. And I yeah. get that. Yeah. I hated being in my dad's shop. It was fine being in my dad's shop with my dad right. until he had to serve a customer. Then I'd have to leave the room. Too embarrassing. I just couldn't, I couldn't cope with yeah. it. Yeah. I can imagine the sort of 14-year-olds and they're talking about vibrators. It's like, yes. oh, it's a bit weird, isn't it? Yeah, it's yeah. horrible. Um, so McGill started in the postcard business because he'd done a humorous sketch on the back of a blank postcard that he sent to cheer up his nephew, who was in hospital with diphtheria. It had a picture of a man holding a sign that said, no skating, trying to struggle from an icy pond with a caption, hope you'll soon be out. This is, this is satirical gold, gold dust. Gold. How do they do this stuff? Um, yeah. And so his eldest brother, John, and his wife, Grace, just happened to have shares in the Pictorial Postcard Company, uh, which had recently been founded by a man called Max Honest Redlich, okay. who was a newspaper reporter of German extraction, who also happened to be married to Donald's sister, Grace McGill. So because of these connections, Donald started drawing postcards for this company in his spare time. Cool. And the subjects of these first cards weren't the riotous seaside characters that came along later in the 30s. One early series was a load of in-jokes about stockbrokers, uh, which probably went down well with his Blackheath chums. Uh, an example of one uh, was a caption that said, sugar falling, small man squeezed. And the caption was this weedy man being felled by a box of sugar. Yeah, it doesn't, doesn't, doesn't age well, that one. No, not um, well. He did uh, football and cricket caricatures, didn't he? And yeah. uh, by December 1905, Picture Postcard magazine, which definitely sounds like it would be featured on Have I Got News For You, um, <laughs> that was describing McGill as... A young humour artist who designs for comic cards and will soon become widely popular. Yes. And one of his most famous cards and was a bestseller right up till the 1960s from the early 1900s. Wow. Uh, it was called Please God Excuse Me While I Kick Fido. Mm -hmm. And that's actually the name of the book that I read. Yes. Um, Please God Excuse Me While I Kick Fido by a woman called Elfrida Buckland. And it was written in 1984. Um, so basically, it was a little girl... Mm -hmm. And she's kneeling at her bed praying while a dog is pulling at her nighty, exposing her little rosy bum cheeks. Yes. Yeah. Um, and, the, and obviously the caption, 
please God excuse me while I kick Fido. He himself admitted he didn't know why it was so popular, um, but he called it his little gold mine because okay. it sold for, what, 50-odd years. That's incredible, isn't it? And it's uh, one of his least saucy cards, in inverted commas, but it sold three million copies by 1962, and it was even translated into French. Shall I have a go? Oh, go on. Yeah. S'il vous plaît, seigneur, excusez-moi une minute pendant que je donne ma cul de pied à mes dors. That's beautiful French, Angela. You do German, I'm sure you do I, French. I'm sure all the no, stress was in entirely the wrong no, places. I, as someone who's failed O-level French three times. <laughs> oh, no, A-level French. I failed, that's right. Um, I've no. got an A in A-level French, but you wouldn't know it from what I just did there. No, it sounded good. It sounded good. Uh, so he very much developed his own distinctive style with lots of very bright primary colours, usually with red being dominant. Yeah, and red. his method remained constant through the decades he worked. The jokes always came first. Uh, he would take inspiration from things he heard in the music hall or the pub, things he read in newspapers. He even admitted later that he adapted jokes he heard on popular radio programmes, Adapted, John. Angela. Adapted. <laughs> Stole. I remember back in the days when I was writing radio comedy, uh, we had a sort of a hit radio show that would just won all the awards and the British Comedy Award and everything. And um, oh, a I very, show off. A, <laughs> it was <hit>. those <laughs> times are gone now. Uh, but this very well-known uh, comic from an older generation to me, put it that way, mm-hmm. he came up and started doing all the jokes with me word for word. You know, Do as, your as, bits at you. As a compliment to say, that's another good joke of yours and just did it. Mm. And then someone else, another comedy writer said, you know why he's, Knows them off by heart because he's doing them himself all over the country. And yeah, he's nicking that's your what jokes. they did. That's what happened in the olden days. So if he was stuck for an idea, he'd make a list of words and he'd try them out for like puns, ambiguity, potential malapropism. That's how you write your stuff, isn't it, John? <laughs> exactly. Um, and it, I love this stuff. Like I really love the word puzzle nature of writing Absolutely. a joke. One of my favourite jobs was when I hosted Newsjack, which was the sort of, like yeah. the weekending of yeah, that kind of really public, yeah. you know, people could send in their jokes. And very often, people who aren't experienced in writing jokes, the, the nub of the joke would be there, like the funny, yeah, but, but, but they would not right. know the word order would be wrong or just, yeah. it just needed edit it. And I loved that. I Me loved too. that. You've got a joke, you're like, you've got a funny idea, but I can turn that into a joke. I remember my old mate Mark Burton was writing a joke. There was a news story that uh, in California, they just released uh, Ice Cream for Dogs. And Mark Ooh. Burton, my mate, wrote this joke when it comes in three flavours, chocolate, vanilla and testicles, uh, which is a good joke. Yeah. But then the very old experienced joke writer who was working with us went, no, no, Mark, no, no, you've got to change. You've got to put the word lick in the setup. So uh... he goes, dogs can now lick their way through three flavours, chocolate, vanilla or testicles. Much better joke. And nice. it's like, and the other thing you have to teach people is the detonator word. Put yeah. that near the end as possible. If you've detonated the joke and then you've got some more explaining to do, yeah, it needs to be as, as yeah. and that economy of words, yeah. like the, in a joke structure, you need as few words as possible. Yeah. Any extraneous words need to yeah. come out because people have a tendency to be overly descriptive yeah. in their setups yeah. and. The yeah. more you do that, the more the punchline has to be I don't know if I've said this before on a podcast, but my grandfather had a comedy uh, a joke book. Mm. And there was this book, there was this joke I remember that went, uh, man was listening to the radio and um, he heard the phrase, um, tits like coconuts. And he wrote <laughs> in to complain to the BBC and the editor came back with a letter saying, if you had continued to listen to the programme, you would have heard the phrase, Sparrows like breadcrumbs, for the talk had been of garden birds. Oh, no, he explained the joke. <laughs> no, no, the joke book said joke that at the end. Oh, no. And I, I was like eight when I read this. And I was going, no, cut that last line. You don't you need, need for the talk had been of garden birds. And for me, a shorthand had always been, no, that's garden birds, mate, garden birds. Yeah. No, that's garden birds, mate. You don't need to say the garden birds bit. We've got the joke at Sparrows Like Breadcrumbs. Absolutely. The minute, if you have to put in a line to explain your joke after the punchline, then your joke hasn't yeah. worked. Yeah. Wow. So anyway, once anyway, Donald yes. had decided on his joke, we could talk about that all day, couldn't we? Yeah, we really could. Um, he would draft the original drawing on some roughly cut out board and then he'd use watercolours from a child's paint box to paint it. And uh, he made the originals twice the size of the finished postcard. And his daughter, actually, in this book I read, she remembered that her father had what he called his thinking times. That's when he couldn't be disturbed, when he was coming up with the captions of the postcards. And I feel that because... Right, have you seen the film The Shining? Oh, yes. Because I, I have ADHD, I know. Yeah. But if I'm concentrating and I'm thinking and I'm writing, if my husband knocks on the door and offers me a cup of tea... Yeah. I'm done. Yeah. Like, it's like, well, you've just ruined my afternoon now. I can't do any more. Because once that's broke, if I'm in the yeah, zone, once yeah, I that's know. broken, it's I can't like get acting. it back. You're like acting. And yeah. there's that bit in The Shining where 
she comes in and disturbs him while he's writing mm-hmm. and he like goes off at her. Yeah. You're supposed to be on her side, but I'm like, no, he's right. Yeah. <laughs> about, she disturbed yeah. him while he was writing. <laughs> Sometimes Jack will say to me, well, if you're at home today working on that novel, can you just ring uh, the garage and see if the car's ready? It's like, no, I can't. She goes, it'll take two minutes. I go, I'm in a zone, man. Yeah, I can't. Well, yeah. it, it sounds so wanky, it does sound but wanky. it's so true yeah. because as soon as I've broken that, I have to turn off all communication Or yeah. because if I just get a text and read it or someone offers me a cup of tea... Yeah, I can Once listen. I break the flow, it's broken for hours, God, sometimes we're so, weeks. We're so precious. So, but when he was painting, not writing, so he's done the, the oh, writing, okay. the caption. When he was painting, he would get lonely, right? Because that's the right. bit I suppose that he found Takes easy. And so, at that point, he would invite all the family to gather in his room with him. Blimey, I mean, that must have been fun. It's like gather round everyone. It, literally watch Daddy's paint dry. <laughs> right, you know what I mean? She, she said that um, she remembers reading to him while he painted. She said he was quite a laugh. Like, according to her, he was cracking jokes and pulling funny faces for the kids. So he sounded, I suppose, quite a fun dad. Yeah. Um, Another quote from her that really resonated with me. uh, She said, my friends envied my having such a charming father. And I hard relate to that because my dad was very charming and very funny. Right. But I would say he had seven jokes. (laughs) And so he would do one of them to a friend and they would laugh. And I'd be like, this is all very well, but you haven't heard it a thousand times. This is my kids this talking. This is torture <laughs> for me. And when I got married, I, you know, in my, I did a speech at my wedding and I said in it, you know, I was obviously very sad that my dad wasn't there on my wedding day. He'd already passed away and yeah. it's sad that he wasn't there. But we did all dodge a bullet that he didn't do a Father of the Bride speech. Um, oh, my God. Yeah. But we're not, we're here, really. Perhaps because of your father and the show you did about him at Edinburgh. That's where we met. I, that is, I yeah, came, exactly. I came to a show, I messaged you, and then uh, uh, we end up we here are. Are doing a podcast. So yeah, thanks, so thanks, thanks, Mr. Barnes. Derek. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't presume to call him Derek. No. <laughs> I'm very polite to him, despite working. Oh, I know that sex shop. <laughs> yeah, hang on a minute. Derek shop. Oh, oh, dear. Um, so McGill would sell these designs for six shillings a time. Um, and in the early years, he would draw about six of them a week. And I really tried to work out how much that is in today's money, but my brain started crying. So, <laughs> okay. um, but as time went on, his cards began to get a little bit saucier. Oh, and on that note, we're going to take another short break from all this sauciness because apparently Angela needs to tidy her desk. At least she said she urgently needs to sort out her drawers. Get in. Back in a bit. I'm Ros Taylor with news of Oh God, What Now? The politics podcast that's never going to leave its voter ID at home. On Friday's show, it's six months until the US election and Donald Trump is stuck sitting on trial in a New York courthouse. Is he bulletproof or can Joe Biden turn around the polls? In the second half, it's local elections week, but we've steadily taken power away from local authorities. What if we gave it back? And in the extra bit for supporters, is there a right level of ruthlessness in politics? That's Oh God, What Now? with me, Ros Taylor, Raphael Baer, Hannah Fern, guest Nikki McCann-Ramirez, out now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, welcome back to We Are History, looking at the history of British saucy seaside postcards. Mm -hmm. It's weird listening to how he started doing bits on the backs of scraps of paper and receipts. My daughter, Lily... Uh, oh, we need to give Lily a plug because well, she's brilliant. She's got 300,000 followers on Instagram. Okay, she doesn't so need, doesn't need it. Lily, plug. give she's us a plug. <laughs> give us a plug, Lily. But she does sort of feminist cartoons on Instagram under the name Vulgar Drawings. But this started when she was waitressing. She started to draw on the back of receipts and uh, bills. And um, she was sort of documenting her experience of being sort of sexually discriminated against in Australia and getting harassment from the chefs. And she started to do cartoons, started to put them online, and they sort of went viral because many women had experienced this. And because they're just brilliant. Yeah, and they're good cartoons. But yeah. now, the, I suppose you'd say the modern way of doing that is online. But check her out, Vulgar Drawings, on Instagram. But it's Absolutely the modern brilliant. way. And her book as well, I reckon. Oh, yeah. I bought her book for all my bridesmaids. Did oh, you know that, John? Thank you very much. That's and great. I accidentally ordered it twice for all of them. Oh so I God, had great. 12 copies of Lily's book that I bought, but um, yeah. I, I've given them to friends I along it, the way. I mentioned it because her 
cartoons are filthy. They are uh, filthy. <laughs> but uh, it's not saucy, they're just obscene. <laughs> but now, uh, right now, we're talking about the most famous designer of the original saucy British seaside postcards, Donald McGill. Yeah. And as this is an audio medium, I suppose we'll do our best to paint a visual image of what these cards were like. I expect we can post some on social media when the episode yeah. goes out. The book that I ordered, which is a proper book, like not a... Yeah, you know, yeah. Uh, has loads of examples of the yeah, postcards well, well in colour in it. Proper so. book, <laughs> proper, but I mean, by which I mean it wasn't a Kindle download. Um, yeah, did, didn't have pictures in, but it does actually. Yeah, so yeah, that doesn't make does, sense yeah. at all. Uh, so it's important to remember at this point, as we're going on to talk more about the postcards, John. One of our stock phrases on this podcast. I've got a piece of the Berlin Wall. Not that one, John. No, <laughs> no, this one. It was a different time. Oh, dear. Danger, danger. <laughs> yes. Okay. So let's just just hammer that home. It was a different time. Yes. There were lots of recurring tropes in McGill's cards. And his stock in trade was big, fat, two-dimensional stereotypes. Usually not very flattering ones, of course. Yes. And there were certain groups of people he thought were fair game, didn't yeah, they? Yeah. For some reason, right up there seems to be Scotsmen. Um Probably because of the scope to be had with what he could be hiding up his kilt, I suppose. Yes. In 1916, there was a card that depicted a donkey lifting the kilt of a Scottish soldier. And the soldier mistakes it as a gesture from an innocent young girl who's standing nearby and says, leave off, lassie. Do you not see the colonels coming? Oh, my God, my accent was terrible. Worse than and I mean, I wouldn't open with it. But uh, McGill maintained that the Scot was fair game because they're ready to laugh at themselves. I'm not sure that's such a good indicator of whether you should have someone as the butt of the joke. No, I think sometimes that's using an excuse like, oh, they were laughing. Yeah, yeah. But actually the reason they're laughing along is to avoid yeah. being bullied themselves. I know I've certainly been in that position myself when I've laughed at something mean someone said to me because I don't want to, yeah. you know, make a thing of it. Well, my dad used to tell Irish jokes as an Irishman and yeah. I'd say to him eventually, I don't think you could do those anymore, dad. I mean, it was one thing that, Maybe some a lot of Irish people used to do, but mm. the times change, and it's like you realise that there is a connection between social attitudes and humour. Yeah, and of course, the trope he most often went for with Scots is that they were well. The way it was put in the book that I read, um, canny. Yes, uh, we know what that means. Uh, so, for example, he drew a postcard with a Scottish dad ordering two cups of tea and four saucers for his family. Now, we're not condoning these stereotypes altogether, John. It was, it was a, a different, different time. time. Um, <laughs> And these Scottish tropes, particularly on the cards, they continued well into the 1960s. Uh, Pre-war, there was a lot of cards featuring Jewish characters. Mm -hmm. uh, but interestingly, however, most of the postcard businesses were owned by German Jewish immigrants. So these didn't last very long, um, and particularly not after Hitler rose to power. No. In fact, another sort of trope of his, McGill's three sisters, I don't know if you remember, we said he had these three sisters, yeah. and they were very much after his father died. They were supposed to wait on the boys in the family. They weren't yeah. encouraged to have their own lives at all. And so they remained spinsters. And the spinster really became one of the recurring tropes of his postcards. And I guess because there's a sort of innocence inherent in the idea of spinsterhood that makes a double entendre very satisfying. And spinsters were often depicted as man-hungry and being desperate for a husband. And in this book I read from 1984, the author says, these may seem cruel jokes and no doubt McGill's cards, which fall into this category, would be labelled sexist by feminists today. They did reflect the reality of their time. Yeah, it's something we've come back to in this podcast, haven't we? The plight of the single woman in the early 20th century was something really prevalent. Yeah. Uh, and it was a plight because, to have a listen to our History of Marriage episode, these women had so few rights to property or financial independence, but post-World War I, husbands were in really short supply. Um, in 1921, there was a surplus of one and three-quarter million women in Britain who yeah. couldn't find and a husband. and they didn't want a husband for some because they were, you know, sexually voracious or anything. No. It's because they, need, security. they needed one to survive for yeah, financial yeah. security. Yeah. And these spinsters were almost always depicted as these ugly, witch-like creatures with long chins and noses. And there's one, for example, it was really upset. It's like this ugly hag and she's in her bedroom and she's reaching for a burglar who's in her bedroom and the burglar's dialing 999 in this, alarm. This is comedy. Yeah, apparently I'm not, so. I'm, I'm not. Um, so he really exploited this idea of the husband being the answer to a maiden's prayer. Um, in fact, he made several versions of a card that he called the shortest prayer on record. And it depicted one of these chubby, ugly spinsters kneeling at her bed. And she's just saying, amen, amen. 
Yeah. See, no, apart from everything else, it's a pretty shit joke. <laughs> so yeah. on many levels, I don't love that joke. But uh, quite interesting how the depiction of the spinster changes. Earlier, she's wearing red flannel with curlers in. But later, she's in her petticoat with arms and knees showing with pendulous breasts and has a picture of a hot man on the wall showing that... While the joke about single woman is still essentially the same, she seems to have more agency and be a bit more daring. As time goes on, yeah. yeah. Before I got married, I used to say I was going to reclaim the word spinster because I got married quite late, yeah, know, 44. And I used to hate that there was no nice word for just a single woman I know, bachelor going about like, her life. Man, bachelor, bachelor sounds cool. Yeah, man about town, bachelor. Yeah, oh, spinster, spinster is like you're some parish. withered up, dried up old, you know. Um <laughs> Then, of course, after World War Two, when women had to take on jobs in factories and so on, attitudes to women changed a little bit. Yeah. Obviously, they pretty quickly reverted. But around that time, he did make a companion card which had a man in striped pyjamas kneeling before a poster of a pin-up girl praying for a wife. Yeah, in the early days, uh, the cad was quite a character, or the masher, as McGill called him. Mm. But post-World War One, those tropes were less frequent, as again, because there were just fewer unmarried young men about. Yeah, exactly. Another trope of his, he made a lot of donkey cards. Lots of cards with donkey. A, because it was the seaside, and B, there's an obvious ass pun to be had. Oh, I never got that before. But <laughs> that's the first yeah, time I've realised two meanings for that. <laughs> oh. um, a very popular card he made was a black and white card. This is in 1920, and it had a picture of a donkey, and it had an actual piece of brown wool for right. the tail. Now, brace yourself for this, John, because this is a corker. It was called the donkey barometer, and you were to hang it out outside and it had the directions if tail dry it's fine if tail wet rain if moving windy if moving quickly stormy if invisible fog if frozen cold if it falls off earthquake I'm not again I'm not laughing Angela some time we we just came through the studio (laughs) different times as we say there are so many characters that come off often Uh, pert and pretty barmaids henpecked husbands and nagging wives horny honeymooners vicars and of course those round bottomed overweight British holidaymakers yes there was some sort of political satire too he would make cards that reflected Topical things. A sort of spitting image of his day, John. How dare you. Um, For example, there was a postcard depicting a card being handed through the prison bars of a suffragette block, which just had the caption, a birthday grating. So that must be why women got the vote? Because of that humorous joke. That was what did it. (laughs) During World War II, he made several cards uh, on the topic of air raid precautions, like wardens being distracted from their job because a young lady is getting changed in front of a window she forgot to black out. Naughty. Um, Um, And in 1941, so during the war, George Orwell himself wrote an essay about Donald McGill. That's how famous he was for these postcards. Yeah. And this essay was originally printed in Horizon in 1941. I'm going to say here, we're not going to post a link to the article. You can find it on Google if you want to read it. Let's just say he uses some language of the time. So if you want to find it and read it, you can. Uh, It does have some interesting stuff in, but we just don't really want to post it. Aside from some old-fashioned views and language, he does make some interesting points about the British sense of humour and attitudes at the time, I think. Yeah, he does. And and he makes this point that I found really interesting, that these postcards at that time are the only printed medium, really, for what he describes as low humour. And I guess he's right, unless you count toilet walls as a printed medium. (laughs) Because that bawdy toilet humour, it might be seen in the music halls and shouted across factory floors, but written humour at that time in the early 20th century would have to be more sophisticated. It would be wordplay or at least smut would be disguised as that. I mean, there's whole theses and debates to be had about lowbrow and highbrow when it comes to what's funny. There's a lot of snobbery and a lot of classism really embedded in it and I know even it would infuriate me on the circuit when you know fellow comedians would complain about certain comedy clubs because the clientele were let's be honest working class right and they'd be like like, well okay maybe they're not your crowd but that's that's your fuck up or the booker's fuck up yeah yeah do you know what I mean it's not there for everyone deserves to laugh and by that I don't mean you know so give them racist jokes give them Jim Davis or whatever you don't have to be offensive but there's no need to be snobby about people who just want to hear good jokes rather than your clown manifesto or whatever yeah yeah and the most snobby people I find are the ones who actually just can't write the jokes that they put down because they're actually quite difficult. Yeah. So Mrs. Doubtfire playing now at the Shaftesbury Theatre. 
all those years I did at drama school studying Brecht and Antoine Arto, <laughs> we have her tits catch fire. She gets a custard pie in the face. This, yeah. this is what you want. It's funny. It's funny. funny. It's funny. I make no embarrassment about that. No. Um, but Orwell really explores this uh, duality of what is acceptable in British culture at the time. And uh, I'm going to read you an extract now, Angela. Okay. In England, the gap between what can be said and what can be printed is rather exceptionally wide. Remarks and gestures which hardly anyone objects to on the stage would raise a public outcry if any attempt were made to reproduce them on paper. Compare Max Miller's stage patter with his weekly column in the Sunday Dispatch. The comic postcards are the only existing exception to this rule, the only medium in which really low humour is considered to be printable. It's interesting, yeah. isn't it? I think what happens actually is on the stage, you can say something really obscene mm. and you might go, did, what, did, did he just say that? You can miss it, can't you? You laugh, you're going, he didn't, did he, did he? Yeah. Whereas if it's there in print, you go back and you see it over and over again and it's sort of permanent and it's anyone can see visceral, it. It's more visceral, I suppose, yeah. because it, it's permanency. Yeah. He does talk about how both sides high and low are in all of us. And I think that's a really good point to make. Yes, yes. And I think sometimes the reason people rally against so-called low humour is because they're frightened of their intelligent selves finding it funny. Right. You know, uh, Shakespeare loved a fart joke yeah. and fucking jokes. Yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's um, And I love this quote in the essay. He says, uh, Orwell says, on the whole, human beings want to be good, but not too good and not quite all the time. Yes. I think some of the most shocking cards to rise today uh, weren't the smutty innuendo ones, actually. Um no. For a start, there are some really racially insensitive cards, of which yeah. there weren't as many as you might think, but they were definitely there in the early days. We won't go into details of those for obvious reasons. Yeah. And also, there were those that certainly in a post-Me Too world would yeah. feel very uncomfortable. And some really on the border of being rape jokes. Yeah. Orwell gives a couple of examples in his essay. And, and it shocked me, not just because of how horrible they are, but also because in the essay, they weren't being highlighted for being horrible. They were being highlighted as examples of good joke structure. So in no way was he calling out no. what they were actually insinuating. So I'll give you a couple of examples. There's one with a man saying to a buxom woman, I like seeing experienced girls home. And she says, but I'm not experienced. And he says, you're not home yet. Yes. Which is, you know. Yeah. But this one, I think, is really, it's two women talking. And one of them says, I've been struggling for years to get a fur coat. How did you get yours? And she says, I left off struggling. Yeah, I mean... They're quite... Yeah, I mean, there's quite a lot of them when I was looking through them before yeah. uh, coming on this, where there's a sense of... God, men looking up women's skirts. What are men like? Mm. Isn't that funny? That man. There's a sort of recurrent theme of sexual harassment being a sort of women. Women are supposed to look skywards and laugh about it, yeah, and that's yeah. not something we tolerate anymore. We no, shouldn't tolerate anymore. There's a lot of um, that, and there's a lot of um, that sort of women not really having agency absolutely. in the sexual encounter that's being. Yeah, with their permission. That's about to happen. Um, That aside, essentially, their cards were sort of full of innuendo and about sex and life in general, albeit a narrow and trope heavy view of it. Yeah. I mean, as joke writers, I found this section of Orwell's essay quite interesting where he's sort of talking about the conventions of the sex jokes that were in these postcards at the time. Yes. And so there's these sort of ideas that are not explicit, but are just. Given, laws given. almost yeah, yeah. they're givens yeah. in these jokes social so, norms for example uh, marriage only benefits women every man is plotting seduction and every woman is plotting marriage yes and no woman ever remained unmarried voluntarily yes um, this idea that sex appeal just vanishes at about the age of 25 yeah. well preserved and good looking people beyond their first youth are never represented the, he writes uh, the amorous honeymooning couple reappear as the grim-visaged wife and shapeless, mustachioed, red-nosed husband with no intermediate stage being allowed for. So it's comedy. The randy honeymooners, <laughs> as soon as the honeymoon's over, become the miserable couple stuck together in a loveless marriage. Yeah, he's going it's, for one gag here. I mean, he's not writing, a, you know, uh, War and Peace. So no. you can understand that he's just going for a dialed-up stereotypes. Stereotypes. Yeah, and and yeah. this idea that, you know, there's there's no such thing as a happy marriage in this world. No man ever gets the better of a woman in an argument in this world. I'm sure you've got nothing to say about that, John. I don't. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. And so what is the poor henpecked husband to do except drink? And uh, Orwell has noticed the conventions for drunkenness depicted in postcards too. All drunken men have optical illusions. Uh, drunkenness is something peculiar to middle-aged men. Drunken youths or women are never represented, which I think is quite interesting, actually. Mm. That women, there's a sort of, uh, there's a sort of 
respect for women there, that it doesn't show them drunk and that, that men are sort of the idiots. In yeah, I think that is a case. Like quite often, yeah. unless you're a spinster, I think the young, attractive women often have the upper hand in yes. the postcards. And like you say, even though they're getting their skirts looked up and they're rolling their eyes and having yeah. to take it, there's still sort of an element that it's the man that's the fool. Um, yeah. I mean, the cars were smutty. They were bawdy. They were chauvinistic. Yeah. But were they obscene? Well, that very much depends on who you are and how you view them. Uh, yeah. In 1951... Um Following Clement Attlee's post-war welfare state government, the Conservative government, boo, of Winston <laughs> Churchill came in and suddenly there was a crackdown on this type of racy postcard design. Yeah, I think perhaps there was a feeling that post-war everyone had been a bit free and gung-ho and easy and things that, you know, just had to be brought back under control right. uh, before the working classes got used to these funny ideas of a welfare state and being supported and before right. anyone had too much chance to find life pleasurable again, John. Right, so in 1951, the postcard censor was born. What an idea. The Ooh. postcard sensor. What's your job? I'm the postcard sensor. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> yeah, well, these censorship boards were set up around the country and postcards that were deemed inappropriate were seized from traders and destroyed. That's insane, isn't it? These yeah. decisions seem pretty random and uh, really based on personal views and morals of the individuals on the boards. Uh, and it's made clear how people were selected to join these boards. I'm sure, John, it was done in a fair and democratic way and wasn't just people who went to school with the mayor Absolutely. or anything like that. No. Yeah. Actually, the Manchester Evening News on the 30th of October 1951, they listed the members of the Blackpool Board of Censors. Oh, go on, tell us who they were. It says, the board has four lay members, four trade representatives and an independent chairman. The lay members are Mr. Basil Woosnam, solicitor, <laughs> the Reverend C.N. Wardle Harpur, vicar of the Holy Trinity Church, Mr. F. Holland, bank manager, and Mrs. Gloria Swanson of Blackpool Hotel and Boarding House Association. That's not the same Gloria Swanson, is it? No, it's not. <laughs> I'm pretty sure about that. Uh, at this board's first meeting, around 500 postcards were examined from two publishers. One of the publishers had 20% of their designs rejected. Mm. And this was also the board that Bamforth & Company, the company Donald McGill had started doing a lot of work for, would have to send their designs to. Wow. 1954, Donald McGill was prosecuted, finally, under the 1857 Obscene Publications Act. His trial was held in Lincoln and in 1954, where he was found guilty and he was fined £50 with costs of 25 quid. Yeah, in the trial, he apparently, um, he quite often denied he knew there was a double meaning to some of his postcards. And I thought that's quite funny, yeah, isn't it? That's a great yeah. thing with double entendres, that there's this scope for plausible deniability. Uh, yeah, well, you might think it's yes. true, but that's just your dirty mind. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Fantastic. Well, good for him. Yeah. Uh, and in 1956, so a couple of years later, or a year later, he actually designed cards about censorship, which was interesting. There's one with a picture of a woman with a skirt blowing up, revealing her knickers but she can't do anything about it because she's holding her hat on with both hands and the caption says censor or no censor I've got to hold my hat on oh, OK yes, good, good. No, <laughs> wouldn't open with it the strength of the censorship boards weakened uh, throughout the 60s of course and by 1968 the Blackpool board was disbanded and what a great leaving party that must be <laughs> however the Isle of Man censorship board continued to work until 1989 that's mad isn't that's it crazy. 1989 uh, there's been exhibitions of Donald McGill's band cards if you go to the Donald McGill Museum website, which is at saucyseasidepostcards.com, okay. which is just the best website address ever. Yeah. You can actually buy copies of the cards that were banned. Wow. Uh, you can also visit the museum. It's part of the Ride Museum on the Isle of Wight. Fantastic. Don McGill died in 1962 at the age of 87, working right up to the end. He had the designs for 1963 all ready to go. Yeah, so he never stopped doing his postcards. It was quite. There was a TV interview sort of towards the end of his life, and he said in it, sort of sad, he said, I'm not proud of myself. I always wanted to do something better. I'm really a serious-minded man underneath. I would have liked to have done sporting caricatures like Tom Webster or even oil paintings if I'd had my way. Do you know what? I think it's, that means he's a slight victim of that snobbishness we've been talking about. Absolutely. That people would have looked down at him at sort of the, his posh middle class sort of old boys' uh, dinners. Yeah. Uh, and whereas we should all go now, well, good on you, mate. You gave a lot of people a laugh. He you obviously knew where the money was. You did what you enjoyed doing and uh, you brought a lot of laughs to people. So, yeah. Um, but thankfully, in 1977, the GLC put a blue plaque on the large Victorian house he lived in, in from 31 to 39 at 5 Bennett Park in Blackheath. Yeah, apparently the ceremony was a bit of a shock for the neighbours. Um, a load of young men in striped blazers and straw boaters turned up and started parading outside the house with these scantily clad Fantastic. bathing bells, saucy maids, shy vicars, all the stereotypes from his postcards. Oh, great. And for the unveiling itself... 
the blue velvet curtain that they usually had, they replaced it with a pair of frilly Edwardian bloomers. And the ceremony was reported in the evening news under the headline, London's tribute to a cheeky artist. And his two daughters apparently disapproved of the bloomers, but did agree that Donald himself would have been amused. And this reminded me of when my dad died. In The Undertakers, they sort of rested his head on this lacy pillow. And me and his girlfriend sort of decided it wasn't quite right, it didn't look right. So she went out and bought (laughs) some inflatable boobs. (laughs) Put them under his head, which my dad would have found hilarious. hilarious. It's so undignified, but my dad was sent to his final resting place with his head on some inflatable boobs. That's what he would have wanted. Do you know, it 100% (laughs) is. That's excellent. Um, (laughs) I think you'd still buy modern versions of these cards at the seaside. I certainly remember them being a thing in the 80s, but Mm. slightly more overtly vulgar with women spilling out of their boob tubes, Yeah, their sort of caricatures were a bit more... Do you, there was, um, oh, a couple of years ago now, somebody on Twitter, they might even be a listener, I don't know, but they posted on Twitter a caricature they'd done of me. They oh, had really? these massive tits in this tiny top. It was really, like, made me feel a bit uncomfortable. And I... Um, I forwarded it to my agent and he he hate, he just couldn't look at it. So <laughs> so that Christmas, I printed it on a mug for him. <laughs> oh, God, poor thing. Um, but, yeah, so the the, the tradition continues and it's, 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 it does feel like quite a British thing. It does, yeah. yeah. I, mean, I hope they hang around, really. Yeah, I, got, I, sort of, I think it says I think something about class. There. I think it says about something a lot about humour. I think I think it's a good topic. It was a, yeah. an bring one on to, the low humour. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. Yeah, yeah. The thing is, as a comedy writer, I do get annoyed that no comedy film will ever win a BAFTA. Mm. You know, no uh, comic novel could ever win the Booker. It's hard crafting jokes, uh, and people uh, sort of go on about. Uh, or the beautiful language of the, this the brilliant novelist. But you try doing funny jokes. It's the crafting of that. Frank Skinner always says, yeah. dra- writing drama is easy. It's just the same as writing comedy, but you don't have to write a punchline. <laughs> that's, that's exactly right. Yeah. So we take, our, we take our hat off to you. Uh, we do, to Donald McGill, McGill and his And contemporaries. we take a bow and the, the skirt is caught by a gust of wind <laughs> and the passing vicar <laughs> blushes. And um, that's it really, John, the history of the saucy postcard. I think we pulled it off. Oh, I like we did there. Hey, it that's was what um, she said. it was um, it was a lot to take in, but we got our mouths around it. We did. <laughs> Thanks again for listening to We Are History. Please do remember if you haven't already that you can subscribe to the podcast. Links in show notes and also you can join John the Patreon Members Club. Yes. Yep, less for the price of a pint a month, especially where I live, or half pint if you live in London. You can get episodes a week early and without ads. Wow. Plus exclusive content and access to suggest topics and discuss episodes. There's various tiers of the signing up and the yes. highest tier, Angela and I are coming around to do your washing up. We will. For a little <laughs> bit more, you can get your paws on some We Are History merch as well. So get over to patreon.com slash we are history. Thank you to everyone here at Podmasters for looking after to us give us a follow on twitter at we are history pod and also on instagram john we're on instagram i said oh at we are history pod fantastic we'll see you next time bye, bye. we are history is written and presented by angela barnes and john o'farrell with audio production by me simon williams the lead producer is Anne-Marie Luff and the group editor is Andrew Harrison. With artwork by James Parrott, We Are History is a Podmasters production. <laughs>